episode of Sidebar with TCDLA. On this episode, I fill you in on a few recently decided appellate decisions from the Fifth Circuit and Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. This episode is a continuation from our last episode, where we discuss significant appellate decisions handed down at the end of last year and the beginning of this year. A special thank you to Kyle Tyrion for preparing the Significant Decisions Report, which is emailed to each TCDLA member and available in the Voice for the Defense magazine. Let's dive in. The first case we're going to talk about is United States versus Hamilton out of the Fifth Circuit. The issue in this case was that 18 U.S.C. Section 666 criminalizes bribery concerning a local government. The statute creates an offense to corruptly give anything of value to any person with the intent to influence or reward a local government official. Can a person commit an offense under this section when that person gives donations to a city council member akin to a gratuity and receives no quid pro quo? The court answered no. The facts in this case were that Hamilton gave money to members of the Dallas City Council. He received, it, he received nothing tangible in return. The government indicted him for bribery concerning a local government. Hamilton is a real estate developer who is involved in local politics. Hamilton had a close relationship with Councilwoman Carol Davis. Davis served as chair of the Dallas Housing Committee at various times relevant to the prosecution. Hamilton donated to Davis's campaign and to Davis's preferred candidates. The government theorized that Hamilton worked to obtain two benefits from this relationship. One, during the period of donations, the city recommended one of Hamilton's projects to the state for state funding, but the funding was rejected by the state and Hamilton received nothing. The second was Hamilton uh, strategized to put a paid sick leave measure on the ballot to increase voter turnout and increase the likelihood of his preferred candidate's election. When he failed to obtain the necessary ballot signatures, he lobbied the city council to adopt the ballot measure. Hamilton met with Dwayne Carraway, a city council member, and pitched the ballot proposition. At the end of the conversation, he praised the city council member and discussed the future potential for partnering on projects in the member's district. Hamilton left the door open for the ask, and the council member implied he needed cash for personal health reasons. Hamilton wrote a check to cover his specific bill. It was later disclosed that Carraway was working at the direction of the FBI for benefit in his own federal prosecution. At trial, Hamilton claimed his political donations were above board and his gift to Dwayne Carraway was money he gave to the help of friend. The trial court instructed the jury that the bribery statute required neither a quid pro quo nor an official act by the council. On appeal, essentially, the court said that the district court believed that Section 666, the bribery of a local government statute, criminalized mere gratuities without a quid pro quo. Statute authorizes a felony conviction for whoever corruptly gives, offers, or agrees to give anything of value to any person with intent to influence or reward an agent of an organization or of a local government or any agency thereof in connection with any business transaction or series of transactions of such organizations, government or agency involving anything of value of $5,000 or more. This provision grew out of a circuit split over a broader statute criminalizing bribery of public officials and the question of whether bribery of public officials extended to local officials. Predecessor statute criminalized bribery, corruptly giving or offering with the intent to influence an official act, and gratuity giving for or because of an act performed or to be performed by a public official. In interpreting the distinctions under the predecessor statute, the Supreme Court explained the difference between the two was intent. Bribery requires an intent to influence Illegal gratuity requires only that the gratuity 
be given or accepted for or because of an official act. In other words, bribery requires a quid pro quo, which is a specific intent to give or receive something of value in exchange for an official act. Illegal gratuity does not. The Supreme Court had, uh, had further clarified that a gratuity is not illegal if it is given merely because of the public official's office. When Congress codified the instant statute, Section 666, it included provisions for both bribery and gratuity. Congress eventually abandoned the gratuity language through recodification. Thus, the current statute intends to criminalize bribery only, an act requiring a quid pro quo. And so holding, the court need not address the First Amendment issue lurking just beneath the surface. The next case out of the Fifth Circuit was United States versus Rahimi. The issue in this case was, do statutes criminalizing firearm possession by subjects of civil protective orders violate the Second Amendment? The court answered yes. Here, the defendant was involved in five shootings in a two-month period. Police executed a search warrant at his house and discovered firearms. The defendant was subject to a protective order prohibiting the possession of firearms. Consequently, a federal grand jury indicted the defendant for possessing a firearm while subject to a protective order prohibiting firearm possession under 18 U.S.C. Section 922-G8. The defendant challenged the constitutionality of this statute. In analyzing this case, the Fifth Circuit found the state statute unconstitutional uh, by relying on a recent decision uh, by the Supreme Court, which was New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, uh, where the Supreme Court held that when the Second, Second Amendment's plain text covers an individual's conduct, the Constitution presumptively protects that conduct. According to the court, in, justify, in justifying a firearm regulation, the government must demonstrate that the regulation is consistent with the nation's historic tradition of firearm regulations. That delimits the outer bounds of the right to keep and bear arms. This holding eliminated analysis of gun regulations by scrutinizing the government's chosen means to achieve a government interest, means and scrutiny. The Supreme Court's opinion in Bruin reopened an issue previously settled in the law, whether the protections of the Second Amendment only extend to the responsible and law-abiding people. Adopting or persisting in such an approach offers no clear limiting principle and would effectively swallow the text of the amendment. The appropriate way to interpret the Constitution is to ask what the founders would think if they were still here. If they were still here, they would think that only felons and mentally ill people shouldn't have guns. Accordingly, the only burden the defendant carries in challenging a gun law is to show that the law regulates guns. The burden then shifts to the government to point to the historical precedent from before, during, and even after the founding that evinces a comparable tradition of regulation. Here, the government failed to demonstrate that the disarmament of individuals subject to protective orders fits within our nation's historical tradition of firearm regulations. Now, let's talk a little bit about the Court of Criminal Appeals. In Inray City of Lubbock, the issue there was, does a trial court in a criminal proceeding have authority to hold an ex parte hearing and enter an ex parte order compelling a third party to produce documents without notice to the prosecutor representing the state? The court held no. Here, the Lubbock County DA charged the defendant with sexual assault of a child. The defendant filed a pretrial ex parte motion for court-ordered production of documents and or things, seeking a court order for the production of documents held by the Lubbock Police Department. 
The defendant specifically sought records relating to the instances in which JG, a child, reported instances of sexual abuse and requested the motion and order be kept confidential from the state. The defendant argued that the Code of Criminal Procedures subpoena procedures infringed on his right to conduct a confidential defense investigation. The defendant requested an in-camera inspection of the documents. The trial court conducted an in-camera inspection and determined that the defendant had a Fifth and Sixth Amendment right to obtain the documents in the decision in the manner he sought them. The Seventh Court of Appeals affirmed the trial court's decision. On discretionary review, the Court of Criminal Appeals reason that ex parte proceedings are disfavored in an adversarial system of justice and are prohibited unless expressly authorized. No statute expressly authorized the trial court to order discovery produced in an ex parte proceeding. Aki versus Oklahoma provides a constitutional ground for an ex parte proceeding to obtain the assistance of an expert. But Aki does not ex extend to criminal discovery as a matter of constitutional law. A defendant's right to seek an expert in an ex parte motion flows from a due process right to meaningfully participate and defend one's oneself with the basic tools of an adequate defense. Aki dealt with the appointment of, of uh, psychiatric experts to evaluate a sanity defense. The extension of Aki by the Court of Criminal Appeals to other tools of defense has been slight. The defendant's argument that Aki paves the way for ex parte third party discovery orders extends Aki too far. The defendant's argument that he is entitled to an ex parte order for third party discovery pursuant to his due process right to defend himself with a confidential strategy ignores Supreme Court precedent specifically rejecting in some contexts that such a right exists. Another interesting case out of the Court of Criminal Appeals was Edwards v. State. The issue here was that a breastfeeding mother gave her child a cocaine addiction. The issue specifically was, can the mother be held liable for reckless injury to a child for causing serious mental deficiency, impairment, or injury when the child suffers withdrawals? The court held no, at least not here. The facts were that CPS learned that the defendant was using cocaine and took her child away. CPS had the child tested for cocaine and discovered a shocking level in this child's system, indicative of an addict doing it all the time. The owner of a drug screening center testified that the child would suffer withdrawals, which could include loss of appetite, psychological effects, and a racing heart. He also testified that the long-term effects of cocaine included seizures, heart attacks, and mental or physical development, developmental delays. The state produced no evidence of actual effects or actual withdrawals. The Court of Criminal Appeals reasoned that hypothetical harm is not sufficient to prove that the defendant recklessly caused serious mental deficiency, impairment, or injury. A juror's common knowledge about drug addiction is not sufficient to fill in the gaps between hypotheticals and reality. Another case out of the Court of Criminal Appeals was King versus State. The issue here was when the defendant is not present for a pretrial hearing, but in his absence, trial counsel does a good job, gets good rulings, and only talks a little bit of smack about his client as a reversible due process violation or a reversible violation of Article 28.01 mandating the defendant's pretrial presence occurred. Court held no. Here, the state charged the defendant with evading arrest with a motor vehicle and with theft of a firearm. The trial court held a pretrial hearing on the defendant's motion in limine seeking to exclude certain punishment evidence. The defendant was not present. The trial court granted the motion in limine after a brief discussion with the attorneys. Quote, while the defendant was still outside the courtroom, 
The attorneys and trial court discussed whether the defendant intended to stipulate to the enhancements alleged in the indictment and whether the defendant might be disruptive at trial. Defense counsel also said that the defendant believes he can fire me and get another attorney and delay his trial. The trial court indicated the trial would not be delayed. The attorneys at the trial court had general discussions on how the trial would proceed under under an assumption that the defendant entered a not guilty plea. The defendant entered the courtroom to hear the state indicate that they would only proceed on the evading arrest charge. The defendant expressed to the trial court his desire to enter a plea of guilty and seek jury punishment on that case. When the defendant's trial attorney returned to the courtroom, he confirmed this desire again. In analyzing this case, the Court of Criminal Appeals reasoned that the presence of a defendant is a condition of due process to the extent that a fair and just hearing would be thwarted by his absence and to that extent only. Article 28.01 of the Texas Code of Criminal Procedure provides additional protection. It requires the defendant be present for any pretrial proceeding, but a violation of Article 28.01 is non-constitutional, subject to harmless error review. The analogous case of Adamandis versus State controls here. In Adamandis, the defendant was not present for a pretrial hearing, but counsel advocated on the defendant's behalf and secured a favorable ruling. Further, there was no evidence that the appellant had any information not available to the attorneys or the court regarding any of the matters discussed at the meeting. The same is true in this case. The defendant's trial attorney was present, argued for him, and secured favorable rulings. Moreover, the pretrial hearing involved a motion in limine, and a trial court's ruling on a motion in limine is not final. Record does not reveal that the defendant required additional time to consult with his attorney before entering his guilty plea and does not reveal the trial court was disinclined to grant such a request had the defendant made one. That the defendant's trial attorney commented negatively on the defendant's behavior was not a matter of consequence. The commentary was to the trial court who did not determine the defendant's punishment and the jury was not present. Let's talk about Sledge versus State. The issue here was when the trial court grants a motion for new trial based only on the bare recitation that the verdict is contrary to the law and evidence without more, may the accused be tried again for the same offense without violating principles of double jeopardy? Nope. The facts here were that the defendant shot a gun at some people over a dice game. When police caught him, he had heroin, cocaine, and a gun in his possession. A jury convicted the defendant of possession with intent to deliver heroin and cocaine and a felon in possession of a firearm. After sentencing, the trial court granted a boilerplate motion for new trial that alleged the verdict is contrary to the law and evidence. The prosecution was reinstituted, and the defendant represented himself pro se. Three months later, the defendant filed an untimely appeal that the Fifth Court of Appeals dismissed, citing the restoration of the case to its pretrial status. The defendant eventually sought appointed counsel and proceeded to a second trial. Before the second trial, defense counsel argued that double jeopardy had been triggered by the fact that TDCJ accidentally took custody of the defendant during the previous new trial period, seemingly arguing that he had already been punished. The trial court denied the motion. A second jury convicted the defendant and found the habitual offender enhancement allegations true, despite the fact that the first jury rejected the same enhancement. The defendant appealed and the Court of Appeals granted a new trial on punishment only. In analyzing this case, the Court of Criminal Appeals explained that the prohibition against double jeopardy includes a protection against a second prosecution for the same offense after acquittal, protection against a second prosecution for the same offense after conviction, and protection against multiple punishments for the same offense. Open quote. 
our review in this case concerns the first category, namely whether appellant's first prosecution and conviction, which culminated in the trial court's decision to grant a boilerplate motion for new trial, constituted an acquittal such that appellant's second prosecution for the same offenses violated the Fifth Amendment. Here, the trial court granted a motion for new trial, alleging the first verdict was contrary to the law and evidence. The Court of Criminal Appeals has explicitly treated this recitation as the same as declaration of insufficient evidence. A judicial finding of insufficient evidence results in in acquittal and a defendant cannot be retried. The state suggests that the court should carve out an exception to this rule, one where the court considers the conduct of the parties following the granting of a boilerplate motion. But courts should not twist the meaning of words to comport with intentions that could have been challenged had the state been paying closer attention when the purported issue rose. Let's end this episode with a little bit of Fourth Amendment and social media. In Ijobi versus State, the issue here was, can the existence of an automatic delete feature on a social media app pose an exigent circumstance that, when combined with probable cause, justifies a warrantless seizure of a cell phone for a period long enough to obtain a search warrant? Possibly. Facts here were that the defendant was an employee of KFC and a suspect in a robbery that occurred at his restaurant. Coworkers learned that the defendant recorded the robbery on Snapchat. A detective met with the defendant to discuss his recording. The defendant told the detective that Snapchat automatically deletes videos after 24 hours. The detective asked for consent to search the phone and the defendant refused. The detective told the defendant he had two options. One, give consent to search the phone, in which case the defendant would have the phone back quickly. Or two, the detective would have, a, have to seize the phone and obtain a search warrant, which would take much longer. The defendant continued to refuse consent, and the te- detective seized the phone and sought a warrant. In his warrant, applica- in his warrant application, the detective explained that he refused to believe the Snapchat deleted videos and that these cell phones nonetheless retain videos that are seemingly deleted. The detective obtained the warrant, but did not execute it until two days later. In a suppression hearing, the detective testified that, that there was no urgency justifying his immediate seizure of the defendant's phone and had no explanation for why he did not obtain a copy of the video from the employees who reported they had seen it on their own Snapchat feed. The trial court denied the defendant's motion to suppress. The Court of Appeals reversed by concluding that the detective did not have exigent circumstances to seize and hold the phone while obtaining a warrant. The Court of Appeals acknowledged the potential of video deletion as a feature of Snapchat, but found the record lacked any evidence showing or permitting an inference that appellant had taken affirmative steps to destroy evidence on his phone. On discretionary review, the Court of Criminal Appeals explained that one exception to the requirement of a warrant is the simultaneous existence of probable cause and exigent circumstances. Preventing the destruction of evidence or contraband is an exigency. Fourth Amendment protection extends to warrantless seizures the same as it does warrantless searches. It applies even when officers want to seize property and hold it while they work to obtain a warrant. Under this standard, the possibility of evidence destruction will sometimes justify the seizure of the phone long enough to obtain a search warrant. The Court of Appeals erred in its consideration of this issue by focusing on the lack of affirmative conduct on the part of the suspect. Affirmative conduct on the part of the suspect may give rise to an exigency. But it's not the only way the record may affirmatively show the evidence was in danger of being imminently destroyed. Moreover, 
the Court of Appeals could not analyze whether the seizure was reasonable as a brief detention of personal property subject to less rigorous scrutiny under the Fourth Amendment. That completes this episode of Sidebar with TCDLA. As always, we want to thank TCDLA members and all of our listeners for supporting the podcast and want to encourage you to reach out to us if there are any specific topics you are interested in or if you would like to be interviewed for the podcast. We would love to have you.